Good afternoon, Mars Hill. How are you all? Well, good. <laughs> Not very many people responded to that. I don't know what to make of it. Um, maybe you're like me. Last week, uh, my wife was out of town away on business, and we have a six-month-old, and she chose this last week not to sleep, ever. So if you were to ask me how am I doing, I would say I'm fine now. <laughs> uh, she came home and I actually got to sleep for more than 45 minutes at a time, so it was wonderful. So maybe you're like me, you're tired, weary from the week. Well, this is a wonderful place to be, to hear from the Word of God among the communion of saints. This passage that Brad just read for us, John 8, 12 through 30, much of it sounds familiar to us, doesn't it? And if it sounds familiar to us, well, that's because it is. Here we are again, revisiting themes like authority, testimony, witness. We've seen these in John chapter 5. In 19 through 29 of that chapter, Jesus is teaching the people that he has the authority to judge and the power to resurrect. But nobody believed him or at least very few people did. And in John 5, 30 through 47, Jesus taught the people about his witness, that his father, who is God, testifies, puts his stamp of approval on Jesus in his words, his teaching. But people don't really accept that testimony because they don't know the father. And because they don't know the father, they can't recognize when the father is bearing witness about the son. So if the people don't get it, the hope for the reader, reading the Gospel of John, us, in this story is that maybe the religious leaders will get it. The people don't get it, we see that, but maybe the religious leaders who are supposed to have knowledge and wisdom and understanding of Scripture, maybe they will see that Jesus is their creator who is walking and teaching among them. But unfortunately, we know that's not true. They hate him, we've been told and they've been looking at ways to entrap him so that they can kill him. We saw that last week with the woman caught in adultery that they brought before him. Now, John is recording the reaction of the religious leaders to the same teaching that Jesus has already given to the people. So in 13 through 20 of this passage, Jesus tells the religious leaders about his authority, his testimony, and the witness of his testimony. That he can judge, but he doesn't judge the way that they do. That he can teach because he's drawing on the authority of his relationship with his father who's in heaven, and that his father bears witness to him that testifies of the relationship that he has with the son. That's why he's saying the things and doing the things that he is saying and doing. In short, Jesus here is declaring now to the religious leaders that his authority comes from God the Father, that his power to judge comes from God the Father, and that the, his stamp of approval, the veracity of his teaching is confirmed by God the Father. But like the people, the religious leaders disbelieved. For this reason, um, because we've already seen how the people react to the authority, testimony, witness of Jesus, and we have now seen very briefly the religious leaders act in the same way, I, I, I want to hone in on two other sections of this passage of Scripture rather than revisiting uh, the same thing that we've already seen in John 5. If you missed those sermons, I'd highly recommend going back and listening to John 5 um, 19 through 47, and there you can hear about how the people reacted to Jesus' uh, authority, his testimony, his witness, and then notice that it's the same reaction that the religious leaders have. John's a good teacher. He's a good communicator. He wants us to be aware that Jesus is not saying one thing to the people and another thing to the religious leaders. 
but that Jesus has a clear and consistent teaching across the board and that everybody is rejecting him. So with that said, today what we're going to see is, uh, is, is something that's, that's meant to shock us with hope. And we see that in John 8, 12, in connection with verse 20. So what Jesus says about light and where he says it in the treasury, those two are connected for us today. And uh, this invitation that Jesus gives us to follow light away from darkness, away from sin, so that we would not remain dead in sins. We'll see that in John 8, 21 through 30. That to follow the light, we must follow the light into a shadow of death, ironically enough, and to die in order that we may find our life. And that we will see that to see the light of Christ is actually to see the world in a whole new way, to see the world the way that his father sees the world. The scene, the setting, is the same that it has been for the past few weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. Just to remind us, this is a biblical feast that God commanded the people would observe. It's a festival, it's Thanksgiving, it's when the Israelites would gather together in Jerusalem, so it's a pilgrimage, and they would celebrate over a period of time that God had provided for them as they wandered in the wilderness, their ancestors wandered in the wilderness, having been liberated from slavery in, in, in Egypt under Pharaoh, and that he stayed true to the promises that he had made their forefather, Abraham. So Sukkot is a celebratory feast. It's a Thanksgiving celebration. Lasts for like a week long, and people from all over the Roman Empire came to celebrate it. Jesus has been using this occasion to teach and to demonstrate that the Sukkot celebration is actually pointing to him that he is the truer and greater Sukkot, that he is the fulfillment of the celebration of Feast of Tabernacles. We begin to see this even before Sukkot begins in Galilee near the sea. As pilgrims are coming into that region on their way to Jerusalem in the north of the, the, of the country, Jesus begins to teach, and he teaches alongside this hill that he is the bread of life. Well, if you are a pilgrim on your way to Jerusalem about to celebrate God's provision from your forefathers wandering in the wilderness, you would know that one of the things that God gave them was manna from heaven. And here now Jesus is saying that manna that miraculously showed up to give life to your ancestors was actually pointing to me, Jesus says, because I am the bread that comes down from heaven. I am the truer and greater manna. Then, about midway through the feast, the Jews celebrated that God had provided them water in the arid desert. And they did this with a ceremony of pouring out water in the temple. And in this very quiet, solemn moment, Jesus stands up and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus is saying that he is the greater uh, rock that was struck in the wilderness. He is the fulfillment of the promise that we see God providing water in arid desert, that Jesus provides living water in a world of sin. Now, in this passage, Jesus is telling us one more way that he is a fulfillment of Sukkot, that he is the fulfillment of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. And to understand this, we have to keep two things in mind as a backdrop here. One, God's promise to Abraham, and two, what led the Israelites through the wilderness at night. The first one, the promise 
of Abraham, or the promise of God to Abraham. If you recall, over and again, God continued to promise Abraham that through his faithfulness, Abraham would be the patriarch, the father of an entire nation of people that God would love and would keep and would covenant with. One of the ways that he really drove this home for Abraham was to take him outside during night, point his chin upward to heaven, and then speak words like this that we find in Genesis 26.4. God, speaking to Abraham, said, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. Every bit of light you see against the backdrop of heaven, the darkness, if you can count them, that's how many people your offspring will be. And I will give to your offspring these lands. And your offspring... Uh, and, and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So God uses light to highlight this promise that he's making Abraham. Secondly, we have to remember that Israel, once they were liberated from Egypt, wandered through the wilderness both at day and at night. But the problem, wandering around the wilderness at night, is uh, you can't see where you're going, Right? And this happens thousands of years ago. There's no GPS. The road systems are terrible, right? So how do they know where to go at night? It's very easy to go off one way or another. Well, this is how we're told. It's a miracle. Exodus 13, 21, 22. And the Lord went before them, that being the Israelites, by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of night, fire by night did not depart before the people. So during Sukkot, light was looked at as representative of both God's promise, promise he made to Abraham, and his presence, his guiding light of Israel in darkness. It was God's promise through light that Israel would become a nation, the starlight, and it was God's presence through light that guided Israel through the wilderness, the pillar of fire. The Jews remembered these things on Sukkot. And the way that they remembered it was they would light tons of candles in lampstands in the inner courts of the temple. So this is a picture of what the temple would have looked like. Of course, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, so it's no longer standing. But this is a model or reconstruction of what it would have looked like. On the outside, you kind of see those, um, those columns. Everything within the column was called the court of the Gentiles. If you get closer to the inside of the temple, there's an inner courtroom that you see there. Uh, this was called the court of women. So Jewish women and Jewish men could be in the court of women, but Gentiles could not. They were prevented from going anywhere further to that wall because the closer you get to that large structure over on the other side of that inner wall, the closer you're getting to the holy place and the holy of holies representative of God's presence. Within the court of women, there was a structure called the treasury. And John tells us that what Jesus is about to say occurred near the treasury. Well, what happened during Sukkot is that the Jews would light all sorts of candles and lampstands in the treasury, around the treasury. Uh, and so they would celebrate and they would give thanks for the promise that God made Abraham and the provision that he gave their ancestors through the wilderness. This light was meant to remind them and to allow them to celebrate God's promise and his presence. If you were a Jewish man and woman and you were able to get there soon enough and find a you know, standing room, because you can imagine thousands of pilgrims are here wanting to get as close as they can to see this and participate in it, uh, you were good to go as a Jewish man or woman. You can celebrate in this. But who couldn't? 
The Gentiles, they were blocked out literally by a wall. There was a wall of separation. So the Gentiles could only overhear the celebration of God's promise and presence, but they could not participate in it. It's a problem, isn't it? Because God had promised Abraham that through his descendants, just the Jews would be blessed. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed, even the Gentiles, even those people that are separated by a wall. And then now here in John, we see that God himself incarnate in the Son of God, Jesus, was calling all people, Jew and Gentile, the whole world, out of darkness. A little bit ironic because there's light all around them and yet Jesus is still calling them out of darkness. Why? He was in the world, John 1 tells us, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So it wasn't that the Gentiles didn't recognize him, it's that his own covenant people didn't even recognize him. And God was calling to himself all people, Jew and Gentile. That in John 3.19, we read, the light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So it is against this backdrop of Sukkot, against celebrating the promise of God with light, the provision of God with light, the separation of the Gentiles on the outside but the Jews on the inside, all looking at the bright light, does Jesus stand up and declare, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. The light of life, I'm sorry. Verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. I am the light of the world. I don't think that we can truly appreciate or even begin to grasp the weight and significance and defiance and beauty of this statement as it would have been heard by the people that first heard it. It's very divisive. If you are a skeptic, an unbeliever, this is blasphemy. But if you are a disciple, a believer, it's breathtaking. Why? I am the light of the world. Contrast light in the Bible against darkness, and you'll begin to see why this statement is so breathtaking. Darkness. When's the first time we see darkness in Scripture? All the way at the beginning, Genesis 1. That it was in darkness that the primeval world dwelt until God said, let there be light. His creative power against which darkness cannot stand. So darkness is formlessness, it's void, it's chaos. It was darkness that overtook the land of Egypt on the day before the Israelites were liberated from slavery. It was a plague, it was a curse, darkness was. Darkness is described our dark Job actually uses darkness to describe the afterlife as a land of darkness, of deep shadow. He says this in Job 10, 21, where life and light are nowhere to be seen. And so death in Scripture is seen as darkness, and darkness is death. The fool and the arrogant walk about in darkness, Solomon says, and the psalmists say. Those who don't get it, those who don't know God, so darkness is foolishness, it's ignorance. It is the utmost evil when people invert what God calls good. 
Isaiah tells us this, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. You see, darkness is connected with evil, with transgression, with iniquity, with sin. So darkness is not good. Darkness is formlessness, it's chaos, cursing, death, foolishness, ignorance, transgression, iniquity, sin. And sadly, John says in 3.19, people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. There again, darkness is evil. But Isaiah foresaw a day in the future when God's Messiah would come and push back darkness. And so he says in Isaiah 9.2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And now what Jesus is saying by declaring, I am the light of the world, that this day has come. That evil had infected the world. Isaiah predicted a day when a Messiah would come and lead people by light. And now Jesus is saying that day has come. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In that statement, I am the light of the world, is, is just packed so much. The first hearers would have gotten exactly what he was saying. I am the light of the world. In that, Jesus is saying, I'm God. He's also saying, I'm the Messiah. And he's saying, I'm God's word. I'm his law. I'm his voice. God, or the Old Testament, I should say, over and again, describes God as light in contrast to darkness. So for example, Psalm 27.1 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. It doesn't say the Lord gives me light and salvation, which is true. But we're going to the very source of light itself, that like the light that emanates from the sun, the two are indistinguishable from each other. That the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? And in Psalm 1828, it says, for it is you, speaking to God, who light my lamp. The Lord, my God, lightens my darkness. And so for Jesus to say, I am the light, is for him to say, I am the Lord, your salvation, your lamp, who lightens darkness. Second, Jesus is declaring to be God's Messiah, who would be a light not just for the Jews, but for the entire world, for all the nations. At first, God promised Israel that they would be the light to the nations, that they would be the light to the world. We read this in Isaiah 49.6, God speaking to his people, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. But in Jesus' day, were they being a light to the nations? Or were they hoarding it to themselves, building walls and separating them from the Greeks and from the Romans and from the Samaritans? You see, they had turned it inward and they had hidden their lamp from the world. They built walls of separation from them and the nations. And so for Jesus to say, not only I am the light, but I am the light of the world, is to say, I am the greater and truer Israel, to whom the fallen and dark world will look to and see the shining example of God's goodness and his faithfulness and his ableness. Third, Jesus is declaring that he's God's word. He is his law, he is his command, he is his voice. Again, when Israel wandered in the darkness, in the wilderness, they followed God's pillar of light by night. And we read in Psalm 119, 105, that this kind of theme of following light in darkness uh, had, had progressed and it had grown to very beautiful sayings like we read together corporately. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 
so that just as Israel was following the pillar of light at night, and just as God's word is a lamp to our feet, Jesus is now saying, if you follow me and you are close to me, I will illuminate the darkness. It will go away and you will no longer walk in it. Jesus is effectively saying, I am the pillar of light that your ancestors followed. And now I'm asking you to follow me too because I am the lamp that lights your way. Can you feel the immense weight in that statement? I am the light of the world. And there's a promise here too, right? I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but have the light of life. So whoever follows Jesus will have nothing to do with darkness. They will not be formless. They will not face chaos. They will not experience cursing. They will not succumb to death. They will not live in foolishness and ignorance. They will not stumble in transgression and iniquity and sin. That's the promise. But instead, he says, they will have the light of life. They will possess. They will take hold of. They will keep the light of life rather than be had by darkness. What a beautiful picture that Jesus gives us. And in an incredible time that he gives that lesson, the power of his message here is almost inconceivable. And the more you think about it, the more mysterious this contrasting of light and darkness becomes. It is quite a mystery. On the one hand, we're told that we love darkness rather than light. In any honest soul searching, you would agree. Why? Because we like our evil works. We like our sin. But we don't want to be caught. We don't want light to shed any, you know, we don't want the light to reveal what we're doing. This is why burglaries and robberies typically happen at night when no one is watching. We love darkness rather than light. But on the other hand, who among us actually loves darkness? I think the more you think about it, the more it gets at Jesus' point here. Who in here actually loves complete darkness? Who's ever been splunking or caving before? Yeah, I have. I did it last fall most recently. And um, the one thing you learn about caving very quickly is you better bring some light with you. <laughs> Because the further away you get from the entrance to the cave, the darker it becomes until there's not a single photon of light that penetrates where you are. Nothing. So you only have the light that you've brought with you, usually like a headlamp, right? And uh, whenever I go caving, um, I always repeat this same pattern again, as if it's never happened to me before. I convince everyone around me, let's all turn off our lights, right? And then we all turn them off, and you do this, right? You put your hand right to your nose, you're like, oh, it's amazing, I can't even see my own hand. Like, how I've done that like 50 times, but it's like new to me every single time, like a child. <laughs> you are in complete and utter darkness, and it's awesome for like 10 seconds. <laughs> and then what happens? You hear scratching or dripping <laughs> or some moaning or some wind. And then you're sure they weren't there a minute ago, but now there's bears and goblins, right? <laughs> and you become overtaken by this fear of the darkness. Why? Because humans aren't meant to be in complete darkness. We're supposed to be afraid of it. Who's ever been camping at night? 
Yeah. Camping at night is great, except between the hours of dusk and midnight. Because when you're trying to get a sleep, half of the forest is trying to get a meal, right? And uh, if you've ever been camping at night and you heard an owl get a rabbit for itself, you will know it's the most terrifying experience you can have. It's pitch black dark. It's like one o'clock in the morning. All you hear is, and then it sounds like a woman screaming to death. And you look over, and it's just pitch black dark. You can't see anything. And it takes you a minute to realize, oh, the owl just got a rabbit. I feel sorry for the rabbit. But now that my heart's going at 160 beats a minute, I guess I'm up for another 30 minutes, right? Why? We can't see in the dark. There are creatures that can't, but we can't. We weren't designed to be in the dark. I think this gets at the point that Jesus is trying to make. We're not made for the dark. We're not supposed to like the dark. But because of sin, we do. Because of our transgression against God's law, because of our iniquities, that being our unjust or immoral behavior, because of our sin, our inability to measure up to God's perfect holiness, we love what we're not supposed to love. We love what ought be unnatural for us to love. We love what we ought to fear and to flee and to avoid. We're also told here, mysteriously, that whoever follows the light will not walk in darkness. Why? Jesus is the light of the world. So by following him, we maintain close proximity to the source of light in a world filled of darkness. Jesus is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So if you follow him and you follow him closely, you are kept safe. One of the most uncomfortable experiences when you're hiking overnight in the woods, far away from roads and those things, is uh, to come up short for the day and have the sun set while you're still on the trail. Because unlike your house, you just can't flip a switch to keep the light on. When the sun goes down, so does the light. And I found myself in this situation many years ago on the Pinhoti in Talladega um, and Chiaha parks in the North State. I had, uh, I had gotten a little turned around, and I thought, man, if I could just get quickly through this next mile or whatever in the trail, I can get to, the, to the, my campsite. And so I plowed through with a friend. Um, we made this decision together. But the sun, the sun set very quickly, and so we had to turn on our headlamps. It's a beautiful illustration, right? Because I, I, can't, I can't see what's around me. When my headlamp turns, all you see is kind of the trees that are very close to you, but you can't really see beyond that. But you just put the headlamp down and you follow the trail. And wherever the trail goes, you just keep going. So we made it safely. We stayed the day at that campsite and we were packing out, hiking out the, the day after. This time we were hiking out on the same trail in reverse in the morning. And one of the most sobering revelations about that trail was given to us that morning, that as we were walking out on our left, so as we were walking in, in darkness on our right, was a drop-off of about 500 feet, only a foot or so away from us. So had we just kind of willy-nilly walked around, <laughs> I wouldn't be here today. But because we had that lamp, and it lit the path right in front of us, and we followed, we were safe. 
Following the light of Christ keeps us safe in a dark world. But does it? On the other hand, where is Jesus, the light, going from John chapter 8? We know the end of the story. Where is he headed? He said to them again in verse 21, I am going away and you will seek me, but you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Where is Jesus going? This is a question the religious leaders can't find out. He's, he's told them this once, and they kind of asked already, where does this man intend to go? This is back in chapter 7, that we will not find him. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? No, he's not going into the dispersion. He's not going out. We do see later in the book of Acts that the body of Christ, that being the church, leaves Jerusalem and goes to the dispersion of the Greeks to teach them. So in a way, they're right. But here in chapter 8, they get a little closer to the right answer this time around. The Jews said in verse 22, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? Will he? No. He will not commit suicide, but he will commit his life over to those who will kill him. So doesn't following the light mean following Jesus to a death, a kind of darkness like Job described. To clarify, I'm not saying, and this is very important, that to follow Jesus is to follow him into the totality of darkness as we've described in the Bible, into transgression, iniquity, and sin. God forbid I ever say anything like that, and God forbid you hear that. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. He is perfect. And to follow him is to follow perfection. And we pray daily that we would not be led into temptation, but we would be delivered from evil. So that is not what I mean. But what I do mean is this. Doesn't following the light of the world mean following him to the shadow of his cross? He tells the disciples in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, so read, if anyone would follow the light, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In other words, Jesus commands us to follow him into the darkness of death. So to follow the light means to go where we weren't designed to go, but where they're meant to go now, where we're meant to go, because there has been a way through the darkness made for us by Christ. Do you see the complexity and the richness and the mystery of this one statement, I am the light of the world? Jesus is giving us a cautionary invitation. He's asking us to trust him, our light, to lead us in the midst of darkness through death to something so bright and brilliant that it defies our imagination. It's a caution because it comes with challenges. But at the end of those challenges, there is an incredible promise that our faith will pull us up from sin, up from death, up from darkness, never to see it again. Continuing, he said to them, speaking the religious leaders, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So here Jesus gives us only two options. Option one, we can be from below, we can die in our sins, and as Paul says, we get what we deserve. For the wages of sin is death. The payment upon your work in sin is dying going to darkness forever. 
This is sadly where the religious leaders are living, squarely. And it's not just that Jesus is saying, you will die in your sins. You're fine now, but you might screw up later. No, he's saying, you're already dead in your sins, and you're going to stay dead in them. You'll remain there. So we ought to repent. They ought to repent. He's giving us all the same warning. But in that warning, he gives us the promise, which is the second option. We can follow the one from above, not from below. We can follow the one who is not from this world. We can follow Christ. That by faith alone, in Christ alone, we are redeemed to resurrection life forever. Because Paul continues, for the wages of death is sin, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because faith leads to repentance. Faith makes us realize you're not supposed to like being in the dark cave. Faith makes us realize you're not supposed to be hanging out with the nocturnal animals. Faith makes us realize there's a cliff a foot away. And it causes us to repent and to turn to light. So we cry out with David in Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sins. So there's a pattern here that we see in David's confession and in our own life of transgression, of iniquity, and of sin. That transgression is the willing disobedience and trespass against an authority. That you see a sign that says, do not cross, and you cross anyway. And in that crossing, we commit iniquity, which is a fancy word for saying unjust or immoral action. This is typified in the eating of the forbidden fruit in the garden, that Adam and Eve willingly transgressed and disobeyed. And our transgression and iniquity result in sin, this concept of missing the mark as if you were an archer, that you're supposed to be hitting the bullseye in your thoughts, your words, your deeds, and the bullseye is perfection, living up to God's holiness, and yet every single time, we can't do it. Why? Because we've transgressed, and we are filthy in iniquity. Repentance is a recognition of that state, a realization that you're living in darkness, but you're not meant to, and it's a cry for help. How does that help come to us? This is the big ironic mystery, that the light of the world has to face the darkness of the cross. The religious leaders, notably upset with what Jesus is saying, asks him in verse 22, who are you? And I think we can safely assume what they're really asking is, who do you think you are? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I've not changed my story. I've been preaching the same thing. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone. He won't leave him in that darkness. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him, that by his faithfulness to the Father and his righteousness, he will not stay in the tomb. The light of the world, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, must be lifted up to death on a cross. And that by believing 
that that lifting up is there because of us and our sin. And that three days later, because the father is pleased with the son and the father has not left the son, he raises him from death. And believing in that resurrection, the most powerful force of darkness, that being death, will no longer have authority over you or power over you. Now, Paul says, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion, authority, power over us or over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the death he lives, he lives to God. Faith in knowing that the light had to go through the shadow of the cross and into the darkness of the tomb and didn't stay there and resurrected to the brilliance of heaven. Faith in that, faith in the light of the world is how we come to life eternal. It's how we have it, Jesus says. Have you seen the light? I don't mean that in like the common way we see it, right? Well, that guy saw the light, finally. That's a really common saying, isn't it? Have you seen the light, the light of Christ? Well, how do we know if we've seen the light? It's a good question, isn't it? I want that. I, I want what Jesus, I believe what Jesus is saying. I want that for myself. How do I know I've seen the light? Here we see in, in the last verse of this passage that a lot of people believed in him. As he was saying these things, many people believed. So what that, what that means is there's, there's saying and believing somehow relates to seeing that as they heard what Jesus was teaching, they were able to see. That to hear the light, to hear God's word incarnate, to hear Jesus, to hear the gospel, leads to belief in him. And that belief in him somehow, that hearing, leads to seeing. So that's how you can know you've seen the light. You've heard, and now you see. But still, we could be unsure. How do I know I have seen the light? I've heard the gospel, but... How do I know it's taken root in my heart? How do I know that like Paul, scales have been removed from my eyes so that now I can see things for how they really are? Well, there's the answer. To ask the question, have I seen the light, requires us to ask another question. Well, how do you see all other things? How do you see the world? Imagine sitting in a very dimly lit room. You're unfamiliar with this room. You were just put there. You look around. There's some light, but not very much. It's very dark. And you can start to notice shapes and boundaries. You can start to see that there are furniture pieces. You can see that there's walls. You can see that there might be a painting on the wall. You can see that there's a ceiling fan. But can you tell what color the wall or the carpet is? Can you tell what the subject of the painting is? Can you tell what material the couch is made out of? No. You can only see them in part, dimly, in shapes. Now, imagine somebody comes and flips the light on in that room. You can still see everything that you saw before, but it looks different, doesn't it? You can see the furniture and the walls and the paintings and the ceiling fan, but now you can see them in detail and in color and with precision and clarity. See, the same goes for us in the world. Without Christ, it's like we're sitting in a dimly lit room. We see things, but we see them dimly. 
But with Christ, with the light, we see the same things in different light. We see them for how they really are. So they have a truer meaning to us. So, for example, when you're sitting in the dark room, what did the couch look like before? The couch looked like a large, shapeless, or a large, colorless, textureless object. When the light turned on, what does that same couch look like to you now? A large, leather, brown sofa. In the dark room, the painting on the wall, what did it look like to you? It just looked like a rectangle hung on the wall. But when the light turned on, what does it look like to you now? A beautiful painting, scenery of a city or the forest of the beach. In the dimly lit room of our world, what does sex look like? A pleasurable expression of love with whomever you feel attracted to and is compatible. But when the light's flipped on, when Christ illuminates the world for you, what does it look like now? It looks like a gift from God between a man and woman in marriage to promote the oneness of their covenant relationship. What did marriage look like before in the dimly lit room? It looked like a relationship bound for love, a space for rearing children. When the light flips on, when Christ is present, now what does it look like? Well, it still looks like a relationship bound by love, but that love is covenantal, never ending. And it's still a safe space for children to be reared, but now they're reared in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ to be taught in his word and wisdom. And that this marriage and this family unit is an expression of the gospel to the world. What did your job look like in the dimly lit room? A place where you collected money for, you know, earning a, a living wage? Maybe it's a ladder to climb and you pull people's ankles and throw them off so you can get ahead of them? But now that the light is switched on, what does it look like? It's a place still where you collect money for a living. Let's not joke with ourselves. But it's also a space where believers see you day after day as a witness to the gospel. And your neighbor, what did your neighbor look like before in the dimly lit room? Somebody to watch football with? An enemy to compete with? Somebody who looks and sounds different than you and needs to be ignored and dismissed? Light switches on. Now what does your neighbor look like? A fellow image bearer of God who desperately needs to hear the gospel and to see a credible witness in you of its power. Do you see the pattern? We know that we've seen the light when by it we see all other things. That is how you know you've seen the light. You know you've seen the light when by it you see all other things. When the light of Christ illumines and clarifies and makes brilliant the world around us and it causes us to see things differently. C.S. Lewis put it this way, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. You know you've seen the light when the world looks differently to you than it does to those who love the darkness, even the parts of you that still love darkness and are being worked on by the Spirit in conformity to Christ. Does Christ illuminate your life? Does he illuminate your sin, your marriage, your family, your job? And by his light, do you see all other things? Because by his light, we are kept safe, and yet challenged to die to self. And that by following the light to the shadow of the cross and taking up our own crosses, we are guaranteed the darkness will not have power and authority over us forever, but that with him, we will be raised to newness of life forever. Peter gives these encouraging words to the church, and I want them to be read over all of us today because they apply to us as well. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What a wonderful message. What a beautiful truth. And one of the ways that the church has been celebrating this and proclaiming it to the world for 2,000 years is through participation in the Lord's Supper. And so we thought it would be very appropriate to end our time together today in celebration of the Lord's Supper.